0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: shopping love it or hate it a bit of retail therapy has long been the go-to drug of the consumer age but today the industry is in a state of flux not seen since the industrial revolution Smartphones and social media are enabling a data-driven transformation that is only just getting started and could change capitalism for the better.
2: Getting a customer's attention is harder than it has ever been before.
1: We are able to connect the
3: producers directly with the consumers, really turning that retail experience on its head.
4: We create an average of 600 jobs per market we enter.
2: We're able to experiment in a physical location the same way that they would optimize their website.
4: The tidal wave is
0: coming. Some people grab their surfboard, other people grab the towel.
1: You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, otherwise known as Schumpeter, for my weekly column in The Economist. And in today's show, we'll explore the coming retail renaissance. Really the modern consumer is a product of the late 19th century and the 20th century. The Industrial Revolution did two things, it it basically led to mass production of goods and the workers they also emerged with higher incomes so they then became mass consumers look here is the new band-aid plastic strip with new super-stick
4: everybody needs energy-packed sunbeam bread
1: overlaid on that was an advertising and marketing boom that basically pushed products down the consumer's throat how about a bottle of coca-cola okay.
4: Thank you, Mr. Compton. Who do you know, who do you know, who do you know, who do you know? That would like Kellogg's
1: And the store itself, whether that's a supermarket or a department store or whatever, became kind of the distribution channel for all of those goods. A
4: daily battle is being waged in supermarkets all over this country. A battle for the customer's dollar. A supermarket is like many little markets or departments, all brought together into one big building.
1: So this has been the model of shopping that has existed for nigh on 150 years. However, the internet arrived and it seems to have turned the relationship on its head. Our data gives producers and retailers a much closer idea of what we want to buy. And also we like, we rate, we subscribe online for products and services. So we've become the driving force, if you like, in the retail revolution, rather than the producers pushing goods onto us as they always used to do. This, of course, has been accelerated dramatically by the pandemic as a result of the fact that shops have been closed. We've flocked online for everything. This seems dramatic, but it is just the beginning of a profound shift in which the customer is truly in charge now. In the West, this upheaval causes a lot of fear and trepidation because of the commitment to bricks and mortar shopping. America, for example, has 24 square feet of retail space per person, six times as much as as China, according to to Bernstein, an investment firm. However, in parts of Asia, this is a time of exuberance and extraordinary innovation, and nowhere more so than in China.
3: Hi, I'm Go Tian. This is my studio, my workplace.
1: Gutian is one of thousands of influencers who are called key opinion leaders in China who are pioneering what's called social commerce.
3: So, I'm a skincare blogger and now I have 1.8 million followers, and
1: they are just like my best friend. Social commerce uses social networks especially live streaming and short video on platforms like Taobao which is owned by Alibaba as well as another platform called Red to sell everything from makeup to houses.
3: Live streaming and e-commerce are bonding together nowadays in China so every followers could buy the things they love at an affordable price without going
1: out? Well, I think the first thing to bear in mind with China is the penetration of smartphone use. So that means you have a shop in your pocket, essentially. Now, overlaid on that is the fact that China is a highly dense society in terms of very big metropolitan areas. So the costs of delivery are much, much lower. Um, And it's also a place where there are fewer attractive shopping centres, especially outside the centres of the biggest cities, such as Beijing and Shanghai. All this explains why the Chinese market in e-commerce has grown to be almost twice the size of that of America and Europe. It's definitely leading the way, and the innovation is such a fascinating part of it. The e-commerce company that retailers talk about most these days is surprisingly not Alibaba, which is China's biggest e-commerce company, nor is it Amazon, the American juggernaut. It's a company called Pinduoduo, or PDD, which uh, bizarrely is just five years old. And yet its success with e-commerce has driven its market value above $200 billion. Last year, it was China's fastest growing internet stock, rising by more than 300%. And some expect it to overtake Alibaba this year in terms of users in China. At Pinduoduo, what we do is put consumers' interests as our top priority.
3: I'm David Liu and I am VP of Strategy at Pinduoduo. When you think about when P- uh, PDD was founded in 2015, one very important change that was happening in China was the emergence of mobile internet. Many people in China, in fact, are getting to know internet um, straight from smartphone without ever experiencing desktop PC. With smartphones, people are accessing the internet anywhere, anytime. That experience is becoming much more frequent. The time spent are becoming much more fragmented. At the same time, that purpose is becoming more entertainment-driven. It's also becoming much more interactive. We saw these changes and went about the design, and e-commerce experience that was different than what was available at the time.
1: This new approach to e-commerce is disruptive on multiple fronts. First, Pinduoduo has developed the idea of social commerce further so that shopping becomes like a team sport with group buying that extends into the most remote villages and towns in China. So when you open up the PDD app, what you see
3: is not a search box. Instead, you see a stream of recommended products. I would end up scrolling, and if I find something that's of interest, for example, I'm now looking at some mushrooms from Yunnan province, I will click inside and take a look at the product details. And what I will also see, very importantly, is on the lower right-hand corner, two different prices. One for purchasing the item individually, The other one for making the purchases as a team. I have two choices. I can decide by joining an existing uh, user who are looking to form a team and together get that lower team purchase price. Or what I could do is actually initiate a new team. I know, for example, my mom really loves fresh mushrooms. So I will initiate a new team and actually send her that mushroom link. The two of us will end up buying the same mushroom and enjoying the lower price. The platform actually understands users' interactions, encourages interactions. We also understand uh, user A's ability to influence the purchase behavior of user B, which help us to be uh, able to actually
1: aggregate and refine our recommendations over time. The firm has carved out space for itself, by tapping into parts of the market that its bigger and more established rivals had not really thought about reaching. PDD started out selling apples, uh, the one from trees, of course. We actually started
3: as an online fruit reseller in the very beginning. So we have very deep roots in agriculture. It's important to understand that, um, you know, despite the development of e- 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 e-commerce in China, agriculture itself is underpenetrated online. What Pingoduo's platform are able to do is we are able to connect the producers directly with the consumers. We are able to look at what consumer preferences are to identify what type of fruits, what types of coffee to plant. And we are working with the producers themselves to select the the right seeds to plant from the very beginning. We're working with them on technologies to improve the efficiencies of what they produce, to reduce the amount of spoilages over time in order to offer
1: better value for our consumers at the end of the day. This simple but revolutionary idea of cutting out the middleman and using data to tell producers exactly what people want to buy is known as consumer-to-manufacturer, or C-to-M. In the past two years, this concept, which was first developed by PDD for cheaper garlic, has now been applied to develop over 4,000 products. For example, robot
3: vacuum cleaners. We work with one of the vacuum cleaner ODM manufacturers in China, who used to basically do a private label for major international brands. Uh, these products end up selling for something like 3,000 RMB per robot. But by recognizing that there is actually demand for this type of product at called a 300 RMB type of price range, we are able to provide that preferences to the manufacturers, work with them to identify features that really matter. It may not be as flashy as the 3000 RMB model, but there is a very strong demand for such a product at 300 RMB type of level. So what we call consumer to manufacture, really turning that retail experience on its head, leveraging insights from consumers, leveraging their demand to drive how the supply chain come together, um,
1: even as far as how products are designed. It's a standing success that shattered the myth of an impregnable fortress surrounding the titans of online shopping. There are other companies like Meituan, which is primarily a delivery company. There's Doyin, the sister to TikTok, And of course, there is the um, giant WeChat, the super app owned by Tencent. So everyone is basically competing with everyone else, which is a good sign. And I think that to a certain extent underpins the level of innovation and and effervescence that you see in the Chinese markets. In Europe and America, by contrast, the view is that the game has already been won by Amazon. And yet the Everything Store may not have won yet.
0: I vehemently disagree that it's only the big folks that are gonna get bigger. My name is Harley Finkelstein. I'm the president of Shopify.
1: Shopify may be the biggest e-commerce firm that most people have never heard of. In 2004, there were two
0: ways to sell snowboards on the internet. Uh, One way was to sell on a marketplace. So we could have pushed our products to eBay or Amazon or one of those marketplaces, there's lots of them. And that would be inexpensive. The problem is when you sell on a marketplace, you are effectively renting customers from that marketplace. You don't build your own brand. You don't have a direct relationship with the end consumer. You're sharing your margins with that marketplace. And and the other way in 2004 to sell something on the internet was to build an online store, a custom online store that is yours, that reflects your brand. But in those days, these enterprise platforms were incredibly expensive. And so we didn't like those options. We wrote our own piece of software to sell these snowboards. And This idea that what if we can give entrepreneurs and brands and anyone that wants something that traditionally was only available to the biggest, most well capitalized businesses, what would happen?
1: The answer has been phenomenal growth. Shopify's value at $175 billion is only about a tenth that of Amazon. But in the past five years, its share price rise has easily outstripped that of Amazon.
0: The first thing that we did was we put out this great piece of software to build an online store. And then we realized, well, a lot of our merchants that were using our online store also wanted to sell in an offline store. So we put out Shopify point of sale to sell in a brick and mortar store. And what that allowed us to do was think about our model in terms of economies of scale whereby if we were an actual retailer, the second largest retailer, and we were to go and negotiate with the payment businesses and the capital businesses and the fulfillment businesses, we walk into USPS or FedEx, we would get these great rates because of our scale. But rather than keeping those economies of scale for ourselves, what if we distributed them And the end result is two things. One is we can level the playing field so that anyone that's starting a business today are getting rates that are similar to what the biggest companies are getting on payments, on shipping, on capital. We can also go beyond just e-commerce and enable them to sell offline, online. We've announced partnerships with companies like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and eBay and Amazon and Walmart.com so that merchants on Shopify can sell everywhere. At the end of the day, what Shopify is today is the world's first retail operating system.
1: In the retail biz, this ability for a brand to reach customers anywhere at any time is called omnichannel. Shopify argues that its approach already enables entrepreneurs to scale much faster.
0: There are ways to build a real business, even if you're not selling something really, really expensive. Bombas or Allbirds or Beyond Yoga, they're going direct to the manufacturers, or in some cases, they own the manufacturers themselves, and they, they, they actually own the entire stack. In December, it came out that Gymshark is now a billion-dollar brand. Gymshark, which was created by Ben Francis in the UK in 2013, who was a pizza delivery guy, now has a bigger brand than the value of Reebok. That was not happening decades past. That was not possible because there was no way for Ben to take Gymshark to a global audience. He didn't necessarily outspend Nike or Adidas. He was just more
1: creative. As we've just heard, they all talk a good talk. I mean, they are quite different companies. PDD is a company that's really pushing the boundaries of social commerce, whereas Shopify is much more below ground level. It enables brands to retain their identity and it helps them to reach consumers. They have their pros, they have their cons. I mean, basically, both of them are incredibly impressive companies. One issue that they will increasingly have to grapple with is profitability. Pinduoduo isn't yet profitable, though one broker I spoke to predicted that it may become so this year. Here's David Liu talking about that. We believe profitability should really be a natural outcome of us
3: doing the right thing. Profitability is not a priority for us. We are seeing operating leverage in our business and we believe by continuing to invest in opportunities like agriculture where there is invent- immense um, business opportunities ahead over the longer run, we should be able to create sustainable shareholder value.
1: I think that the lessons of Pinduoduo and Shopify are sufficiently uplifting to think that there will be opportunities for competition to thrive there are other reasons for that too i mean for example the trustbusters the the regulatory agencies in america europe and in china increasingly concerned about how the tech giants are using our data there are also efforts to change tax systems so that there is more defense of smaller retailers so i would say that the market as yet is not sewn up in any part of the world this upheaval really is only just beginning we're in the foothills coming up the death of the high street has been predicted for a decade so what does all this mean for bricks and mortar shops For physical retailers, the Amazon effect has been brutal. In America and Britain, the closure of stores has far exceeded openings for years. But even in the midst of a pandemic, e-commerce does not mean the death of physical stores. When lockdowns have lifted, shoppers have rushed back to the high streets and gone into malls. That said, the data-driven revolution is unstoppable. And it's not just changing the way we shop online, it will change the physical store too.
0: My version of the future of retail is retail everywhere. Harley Fenkelstein. If I'm going to walk in to a store that's selling a brand that I could otherwise buy direct, the experience, the curation is so good that it justifies me buying it from that store. And if you listen to an earnings call of any of the large department stores that have been resistant, you hear terms like, well, offline and online are competing and online is hurting offline. You will never hear modern brands ever talk about channel conflict because at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is create a great experience.
2: Entertaining and getting a customer's attention is harder than it has ever been before.
4: We've got raining fruit coming down from the ceiling and then into our art slide. Hope you don't get motion sickness. Hold on tight. Hope you enjoyed the ride and are ready to get right into the mixology.
2: My name is Katie Hunt, and I'm the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Showfields. We wanted to make opening a physical location as easy to open and run as a website.
1: Showfields is a niche but compelling example of how the bricks and mortar store can not only survive, but even thrive.
2: We're integrated with over 400 direct-to-consumer brands, and we curate these crazy stories where half of our buildings are emerging artists from all over the globe doing these crazy immersive experiential pieces. And the other half of our store are all different brands that we've curated around a certain topic. So our customer is coming into a 14,000 square foot immersive moment in time where they can shop, they can ride our slide, they can try all different food products, they can go to events and classes and community events, and they get to meet all new brands.
1: Its physical extravagance is matched by a digital leanness, using that same sort of root and branch analytics that so many tech giants rely on.
2: So what we start with is when we take a building or a location, we're collecting data from cameras outside of the space before we ever think about what brands we're going to be putting in. We know who's there during the day and on the weekends and what they're doing and the other things around us and the activities of that consumer. And then we take that data and we mine it against all of the crazy direct-to-consumer brands out there. And then every brand in Showfield is invited in. They are then part of that next curation, which will run for six months. And during that curation, they have a backend that literally looks like Google Analytics. They can see who's walking by their space, who's coming in, who's touching product, who's purchasing, who's interacting with the screens, And then they have all of these variables where they can make decisions based on data.
1: It's a complete rejection of the idea that built the mega malls and stacked the shelves of the late 20th century that more is more is more, and the consumer is always hungry for it. If it's 10 products
2: in the space and we're only seeing five of those really sell, what would it look like for the next two weeks to remove five of those? Only show our five hero products and see what happens to sales. We did that with a brand and we watched their sales go up by 90%. This is actionable, data that were able to surface to small brands, and were able to experiment in a physical location to optimize for them the same way that they would optimize their website. When you're integrated with the Showfields technology, you will have the ability to turn on any of these locations at a click of a button by just sending inventory, and you'll be able to test out new markets, meet new consumers, and do that at scale.
1: It's certainly a beguiling vision, but it's also an expensive one. Physical retail cannot all be faux-first slides and in-store yoga classes. And it won't be. For proof, look to the supermarkets. The
4: reasons that adoption of e-commerce grocery have been slower is, frankly, that the alternative, the offline experience, was actually quite a good one.
1: Neelam Ganentharan is president of Instacart a fast-growing grocery platform that may launch an initial public offering this year, valuing it well in excess of $30 billion. As well as providing lots of gig economy shoppers who do the grocery shopping on consumers' behalf. Like Shopify, it also supplies the technology to let retailers run their online and offline operations centrally.
4: My hypothesis is that there's going to be times where you are looking forward to going back to the physical grocery store, browsing the aisles and enjoying that experience. There's going to be other times that you're otherwise busy and you're going to want that hour or two hours back. The only thing that the pandemic has changed is awareness amongst customers that this is an opportunity and this service is available to them for the times that they have other things to do. So I do not believe a switch has gone off and every transaction in groceries now comes online. That's not what's gonna happen here.
1: Even in China, the ultimate goal is not to leapfrog the store. Alibaba is investing in upgrading big city supermarkets. Along with JD.com and Pinduoduo, it is also working with grocery shops in far-flung villages to make distribution cheaper and more efficient. This flexible, efficient, customer-obsessed retail landscape is the optimist's vision of the future of shopping. But the pessimists, and there are plenty of them, fear dead town centers, derelict shopping malls, and worst of all, rampant job losses. Many fear that even where e-commerce creates jobs, they're likely to be worse ones physically demanding, they're very repetitive, they're poorly paid, but the innovators insist that retail-related jobs don't need to disappear and they may even change for the better. So here's Neelam Ganentharan, president of Instacart.
4: We create an average of 600 jobs per market we enter. So what is a retail job at, its, at the atomic level? I think it's a service job, you act in service of the customer. There was a fair bit of low value added work sitting in the retail store that now can become more uh, higher value add around customer acquisition, customer training and engagement. That is over the medium and long term. We think a lot of these jobs get reconstituted around things that are at a higher level of service than just uh, telling people where the pasta sauce is in the aisle, right? Like if you if you really think about it, that is something that can be solved with technology versus having advising someone of what pasta they can make is the type of thing that people should be spending their time doing.
0: I don't agree that this is a time of job losses or that this new future retail is going to hurt retailers. I think it may hurt the resistant retailers.
1: Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify,
0: Certainly in North America, but I think in the Western world generally, they're waiting for this pandemic to be over to go back to the status quo, to the way things were. It's a very dangerous way to think about things. The Tidal wave is coming. Some people grab their surfboard. Other people grab the towel. And I think those that are resistant to grabbing their towel right now, they are missing one of the largest opportunities that their brands
1: and companies have ever had. And there are definitely both sides to this. I mean, on the one hand, those concerned about the pace and the scale of these changes have really good reasons to be worried. I mean, the most obvious one is the centrality of data. And that brings with it all sorts of questions about privacy concerns. On top of that, you have the climate impact of mass consumption. This is only just beginning to be offset by... Conscious consumerism, the rise in interest in sustainable shopping. There are concerns that we've mentioned about the quality of the jobs that are created as well. That's the societal problems there, but even for the retailers, it's not a no brainer, this. It's still a challenge to make. Omni channel retail profitable. Retailing has always been an incredibly tough business in which competitors fight over low margins. It's very worthwhile having one's reservations about the e commerce. Boom. But I wouldn't leave it there. I tend to think about it from a more optimistic perspective. We should celebrate the overhaul of a model of shopping that, after 150 years, has reached its sale by date. When we look ahead, what you can see is a retail experience that becomes more democratized than it was in the past. It creates the possibility of new products that are directly tailored to what we want to buy. This kind of tailoring to the consumer also potentially means lower waste. I like the fact that retailing is becoming more creative, and let's face it, we're still only at the very beginning of this, 15% e-commerce penetration look that means that there's still 85% of global retail that's still offline in physical stores so that is a whole lot of territory left to conquer thank you for listening to money talks we've really only just perused the front window of this subject you'll find lots more amazing stories of retail innovation and insights into the data behind the trends in my special report on the future of shopping. Subscribers can read it at economist.com and if you're not yet a subscriber you're in luck. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. If you want to find out more about how customers' data will shape e-commerce, you can also watch our film on The Future of Shopping on The Economist YouTube channel from Thursday, March the 18th. And in the spirit of consumer-centric commerce, please take a moment to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so we can know what you want and give you more of it. Big thanks go to David Liu of Pinduoduo, Harley Finkelstein of Shopify, Neelam Ganintharan at Instacart, and Katie Hunt at Showfields. The producer is Amika Shultino-Nolan. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist.
4: Even on a budget,